Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Bible reading is taken from the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 and then 21 to 33. As is the custom of the church after the Bible reading I will say this is the word of the Lord and the people will respond with thanks be to God. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the spirit. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever ate their own body but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Quote, For this reason a man will leave his wife and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. End of quote. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The Christian marriage is very unique in this sense. It's a journey. But the Christian marriage is to prepare your spouse for eternity. Let's say that together. The Christian marriage is to prepare our spouses for eternity. Now, if you notice what it says here, a slight bit of theology here. When we become Christians, there are certain things that happen to us instantly. Now, we've spoken about, and this is part of the gospel, we didn't speak about this, but you can think about the fact that a new status is conferred upon us. Now, one of, those sta- one of the status there is that we are given righteousness. So, we are no longer under the condemnation of God. Now, we are justified. That's one. We are justified. Another status that is conferred upon us immediately is that we are now children of God. So, we are now brought into the family of God. We don't work for it. We are giving the status we are now children of God. Now, one other one, if you take a temple metaphor, is that we are cleansed. We are sanctified. I'll put it this way. We are positionally sanctified. We are 
place where it is as though we are fully holy, not because we work for holiness, but because we are in Christ and Christ is supremely holy. Do we understand that? This is why every time when Paul is referring to Christians, he calls them saints, not because they always behave as saints, but because through Christ, they have the status of sainthood. Do we get that? Now, part of the journey of what Christ then does is to move us from a positional standpoint onto when we are actually saints, fully saints, not just in the status that he gives us, but in also our behavior. Now, we are growing from that to, the Bible says that we keep growing from one uh, glory to another. The journey from going from when we just got the status to when we actually are fully glorified is what we can then call continuous or progressive sanctification. All right? Do we understand that? Now, this is the journey that actually you, who is married, is meant to participate in for your spouse. That's where your spouse is going. In fact, Romans 8, 28 to 29, that we all know, says this. All things work together for the good of them that love God, and are called according to his purpose. Then he tells us the purpose after. He says that for those who have, he, knew, he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Now, foreknowledge is for the people. Predestination is where they're going. Do you understand? So there's a particular destination that God has preordained for us, and then he's taking people to that destination. What is that destination? Simple. To be fully conformed into the image of his dear son. But then he says, how would that happen? It will happen because all things will. For your journey towards eternity. Do we understand that? Now, the question becomes, how do I participate in that. How do I participate in that? So Femi now is thinking, how does he participate in getting Helen towards being prepared for eternity? And Bola is thinking, how do I participate in getting Kemi ready for eternity? Now, before I tell you how you participate, let me tell you two ways you cannot participate. Unfortunately, we are meant to have a slide there, but if we don't, we'll just keep going. But there are two ways how we cannot participate, and it becomes a particular profile. Don't worry. Let's all just be uh, fully attentive here. There are two ways, and it's two profiles you must not actually occupy. The first one is what you can call the bystander, and then the second one is what you can call the rescuer. Right? You don't want to be a rescuer, neither do you want to be a bystander. Now, who is the rescuer? And who is the bystander? The rescuer is the one who is always correcting always correcting. In other words, you see your position here as, it's true. It's true. This thing I've always been telling my wife. This is the problem with her. If only she knew that she had to be more like Christ. So I am there to rescue her to become more like Christ. So she does something wrong, you correct. She does something wrong again, you correct. And you correct. And you correct. And quite often in doing that, when you are trying to correct and correct, you actually give her an example. I mean, the last time that we sorted this thing out, at least when I did my own, I actually did this way. Isn't it, right? Amen? Okay, okay, that's not happening in your marriages. Thank God. All right, so uses themselves as an example. 
and here's one I find that is very, very disturbing, is that, and again, I said this happens even in relationships, is that you're so focused on how this person, quote unquote, is not perfect, in that when the person actually does right things in their growth to holiness, you can never actually compliment. In fact, do you know why you don't compliment? Because you don't even see it. If you do see it, you're actually going to attribute it to some kind of, they're acting out of character. And then, because this thing continues, the vicious cycle, you get frustrated, and then you try even more. In the frustration, instead of you to get a hint that this is probably not the way to go, you think, no, the problem is, I will try harder. It's just sort of like when you know someone calls you on the phone, and the person can't hear you. What do we say? And you can hear the person, but the person can't hear you. So what do you say? I can hear you. I can, no, but the, the person can't hear you. I, do, I often don't. You, that doesn't happen to you. The person can't. You say, no, but I can hear you. Of course, the problem is not that you can't hear the person. The problem is that the person can't hear you. And then what we do, we think is by shouting more that the person will hear us. Well, actually, it's actually a technical problem. And it's the same thing. The spouse doesn't really hear us, but we keep doing it louder. And then, obviously, you do not pray for your spouse as much because you believe it is what you do that is actually going to change them. Whereas, the rescuer is so involved, the bystander is actually giving up. In fact, the bystander is reacting to this kind of, you know when you say we want somebody that is compatible to, to us, compatible to us, basically we are saying someone that doesn't change us. Now, it's either you are reacting to that or you have actually gotten frustrated. So, the bystander here never corrects. Never corrects. Because sometimes it's even a defense mechanism. Don't correct me so that I don't correct you. Right? Let's all just occupy our own places. Or the moment you correct, then that's when you now say, do you remember that at that time when you did this particular thing? Did I say anything? <laughs> now, they are unable to ever use themselves as an example. Sometimes that's because they've been so beaten down on this thing. And they to themselves, not that they're ever able to compliment their spouse, but they are never able to compliment themselves. This is why they actually don't use themselves as an example. Sometimes these are people who have been so beaten down. And so it's, let's live a separate life. Some of them have tried for such a long time that they say, you know what, this person is beyond redemption. And so therefore, they to themselves do not pray for their spouses. They're exhausted. Now, we cannot be like any of these two. There is one other profile that we can be like, and this is what God calls us to be like. We're not the bystander or the rescuer. We are called to be the partner. Now, what, what does that mean? I don't mean partner as per partner. Of course, you're already married to the person. I mean partner in this. If you think, look at Romans 8.28 uh, and 29. It says that eventually where God is taking us is to glorification. But it is God who calls, it is God who justifies, and it is God who does what? Glorifies. In other words, you are not the one that can change your spouse. Only God can change their spouse. But that doesn't mean you become a bystander and stand aloof. God has put you there to participate in it. The question now, or the way we look at it, therefore, is how do we participate in partnership with God? Now, there are some characteristics of a partner. A partner corrects with patience. Now, what I mean by that is that if you are correcting with patience, you are not thinking, I just need to get this out. You know, sometimes you say, I just wanted to tell the truth. Is it, is it my fault that partner couldn't handle the truth? 
But actually, the anger has so taken over us that we are not focused on preparing that person for eternity. We are focused so much on ourselves and getting the anger out. And so we want to correct at every single point. Whereas the partner is thinking, you know, it's not really me that actually changes this person. It's God. And I'm patient with God for the timeline that God has set. So I will look for the better time to actually correct my spouse in a time that doesn't bring about argument. I'll look for the better tone. I'm too angry. I cannot actually be the person to do that. And this person points to Jesus most of the time, or almost all the time, as the ultimate example. And here's another thing the person does. Even if your spouse is wrong 75% of the time, and they are correct 25% of the time, you make them feel like they are correct 75% of the time and wrong 25% of the time. You see, because you marvel at where the person, the, the person is in the journey towards that ultimate goal. And so that is where you are focused at. If you are like the uh, rescuer, even when the, your spouse is 90% correct, you amplify the 10% as though it's 90. You are focusing on the faults and not on the good things. And eventually, obviously, you continue to pray for your spouse. Someone said, you know, I don't know if you... On that day, one of the things I look forward to, to my wife, and I hope for some of us here, our spouses, our husbands and wives, is that you have so invested so much into what God has done, is that on that day, you look at your wife and you say, when this person is clothed in splendor of God's majesty, in full-blown holiness, you say, you know, I always knew you could be like this. I saw flashes of this, this side of eternity. And I thank God that he brought me to actually participate in this. Wouldn't that be an ultimate, wonderful vision? Now, but how does it work? Because there are some details. There are some details that we need to actually look at. And so we go to the second point, which is the, um, the nature of the journey. The nature of the journey. Now, marriage can be very hard, and Christian marriages can even be much more harder. Now, one of the places that we know that makes marriages very difficult, Christian marriages, is when we look at verse 22 and verse 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Verse 33. The wife must respect her husband. Now, this, these verses have come with no little controversy. No little controversy. Because you start asking, really, this stupid man, I should submit to him? Really? Or with all that he has done to me? I know that's what Paul was saying, but mm, there are certain people that are irredeemable. Even the Bible actually cannot convert, cannot be speaking about this person. And then we see countless abuses in our society. Now, can I just say very, very quickly, before actually going into the details, can we even just take a step back and see what it's saying in general? What it's saying in general is, and it's saying something that no marriage can work without, is this. Both parties in the marriage should be living for the other person. At least he's saying that, right? He's saying, wives do something to your husband. And husbands do something to your wife. At least it's saying, in a marriage, you are not to be living for yourself. In that regard, both the wife and the husband have the same calling. We are both called to live for the other person. Here is the twist. 
we are called to live for the same, uh, for, we are called to the same purpose to live for the, for the other person, but we are called to do it in different ways. Now, why is that? It's this thing about sameness and difference that runs through the whole Bible. Think about it first. When God created the world, right, he created animals and then he created human beings. Both of them are the same in that they are both creatures. They are both not God, isn't it? But only one of them was created in God's image. So in that way, they are different, united as creatures, but different as image bearers of God. So one has more worth than the other one, even though they are both creatures. You now take that into creation of human beings. Both of them now, Genesis 1, 27, 28, both of them now are created in the image of God. The same. They have equal worth, equal value before God. Quite often, unfortunately, the sadness is not before, before ourselves. But every single human being, no matter how they behave, no matter the issues they have mentally or whatever, every single human being has equal value before God. But then, he created them male and female. He created them man and woman. Now, what has he done there? He's shown us that they are the same in worth, but they are different when it comes to sex and gender. The sex is the physical, the things that we see on the outside, right? The things that make them male and female is from, you know, our, our reproductive organs are different in that regard. But the man and woman is different now. It now focuses on the inside. You see, a biblical anthropology or a biblical study of what man is, as Paul would say, you know, the, though my, my outward man is wasting away, my inner man is being renewed day by day, body and spirit. So in our bodies, we can see that we are different. And also, that which we do not see reflects that as well. In other words, there is something about being a female that is distinct from just the fact that you actually have a different body from a male. We think differently. Now, this is proven more and more through brain science and social, social, social sciences as well. Now, but then in that creation, something happened. Sin entered into the world. And in Genesis 3.16, we start to see that actually these people, this unity in diversity, I forgot to actually mention that part of the diverse, the reason why God made them diverse, and you can see this in Genesis 2.15, and 22, is that God gave the man actually a mission, but he realized that the man could not actually do it on his own. So he said, I'll give you a helper. A helper was not an inferior designation. In fact, the helper means that this person is meant to do something, but will not be able to do it without the help of another person. So the man cannot actually complete his mission without the woman, and the woman cannot complete her mission without the man. The mission was given to both of them, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and they need each other. So God brings this diversity so that they can be united. So our diversity is for the purpose of one mission. Are we together? When sin came into the world, diversity all of a sudden became division. Rather than the diversity bring, you bring your part, your different part, and I bring my different part so that we can achieve one goal, the diversity became division. You are different to me, and therefore I will treat you in this way. And we see that in Genesis 3, 16. They turn against each other. Now, how this has translated in our, traditional, in our traditional and modern society is two different ways. With the traditional societies, we accept the difference, 
but we reject the mission. We accept the difference, but we exploit it. We reject the mission. In other words, we say, yes, we are different, and we know that men are physically stronger than women in many things, right? And so we lead, it leads to some kind of patriarchism where the men actually exploit this difference to dominate women. This is, an in, this, this is a fact that cannot be argued against. I hope you know that. The part of the history of the world has been the subjugation and the oppression of women. It is only in this century that many, I mean, even first in the Western world or now, that women actually had the right to vote. If you cannot see how that diminishes the whole thing about equal worth, I don't understand. And then this works out also in things like polygamy. If one man actually is equal to two or three women, what does that say about the value of those women? And we also see that in how people abuse their wives in their marriages. They don't allow them to flourish. They are actually very scared of a smarter wife. All those different kinds of things. This difference has been exploited. And the mission has been rejected. That's the traditional. The second one is a more modern society. So if that other one is giving us patriarchism, this one is giving us secular feminism. Now, what this does is that it rejects the difference and redefines the mission. What do I mean by rejects the difference? I don't know if you've heard about this before, but some people will come and tell you, yes, that there is sex, but that gender is a social construct. If I'm one of the most radical feminists of the last century, and the most influential, one of the most influential feminists, a woman called Simone de Beauvoir, she said this, you're not born a woman, you become one. You're not born a woman, you become one. Now, she said, you're born a female, but there is no difference between us on the inside. You may decide to actually take on this particular way of behaving. And this is part of the problem we have with transgenderism. It's possible that what I feel on the inside is different from what is on the outside. Why? Because what is on the inside, this whole thing about gender, is a social construct that was erected to actually oppress women. You see what happens? is that because there has been an exploitation of gender, gender itself as a category is totally rejected for one purpose and one mission, for the empowerment of women. Now, that's a good thing. But the problem is that it's a, solely an empowerment of women and not an empowerment and mission of the whole of humanity. We want the women to actually be empowered, but not for the women's sake. For most of them, that is the end. In fact, the men then become the enemy. And Paul does something different in this passage. Because on the one hand, some would actually, the, 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 patriarchs, the, the patriarchism actually distorts Paul, and whereas the feminism will actually reject or reinterpret Paul. Paul offers us a better vision, redeeming what sin has actually corrupted by giving us a complementarianist view. He's saying, don't you get it? You guys are different. Because you are different doesn't mean that you actually have to be divided. Your differences are meant to complement, hence complementarianism, complement one another for a particular purpose. Without this, you cannot flourish. Most of us know this, again, is documented fact. If you have only one gender, particularly men, solely dominating your organization, you will flourish less. If your diversity... A quota actually increases, you actually see better things. Why? Because the women are bringing things in a particular way that the men do not have. 
Now, I want us to understand Paul's thing here, and I'm really rushing and see how it applies. I want us to understand how, therefore, we can work this out in a very good dance without actually abusing it. And for us to do that, we need to understand this thing I can call the reciprocal and the distinct. The reciprocal and the distinct. It has something to do with our functional status and our conferred status. I'll explain that. Now, the functional demands reciprocity and the, con and the conferred status requires a one-sided action. Here's how it works out. Now, the woman is called to submit to the man. Now, first of all, you and I will already see that. Wait, we should actually both submit to one. Only the woman submit to the man. Now, the reciprocal, which is based on the functional, will say this, that we should submit to one another's gifts. There are many women here that are smarter than their husband when it comes to finances. You should not say, because I'm the head, I must handle the finances and throw your, your, your whole family into danger. So we submit to one another's gifts and we respect each other because we are both image bearers of God. That is the reciprocal. Now, but the conferred status, the man is still giving the authority as the head. It is not because he is better than you in something. It is representing something else. In other words, there is still, according to what Paul is saying, there is still a way that the woman submits to the man that is not reciprocal. Do we understand that? And that's the distinct. On the other hand as well, husbands love your wife. Are we then saying that it doesn't matter whether a wife loves her husband or not? No. My beloved is mine and I am my beloved. They are both to love one another. Romantically. We see that in the whole book of Songs of Solomon. That is the reciprocal. But there is a way that the husband is meant to sacrificially love his wife that is not required of the wife to the husband. Do we understand that? In fact, this is partly why traditionally, even though some, some people are trying to, uh, trying to edge on this now, but traditionally, it is men, not women, that go to war. Because men actually, there is an understanding that the function of a man is actually to protect in a way that a woman doesn't protect. And now Paul is saying, if we do this dance properly, it will actually lead to proper flourishing in our marriages. One last thing on this point. What do you see that Paul does not do when we are then thinking of this nature of leadership and submission? One of the things Paul clearly does not do, even though he's clear that the husband is the head and that he actually leads and then the wife should submit and then the husband is the one to actually lay down his life, what Paul does not do is give us a list of items of what this headship is. And we have to be very careful with that. You do not say the Bible says you have to always be the one to cook. It just doesn't say that. The Bible does not say because the man is head, he doesn't know how to, he mustn't know how to change diapers. That is ludicrous. First of all, it's factually incorrect, but that is crazy. The Bible also doesn't say, okay, no, 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 that's, that's what I said. I should have, I should have, I should have. I'm a man, so I'll allow a woman to actually make the defense there. But what Paul does not do is give us specifics. This is absolutely brilliant. For almost all those who say this thing is culturally located, Paul knows when not to speak in cultural terms and when to. Because Paul identifies that if we move from cultures to cultures, one, and if we move from circumstances to circumstances, two, these things will work themselves out differently. 
It doesn't make any sense if my wife has not spent any time in her life in the kitchen, and I've actually trained to be a chef, to then say, but you know I'm the head, so you actually have to enter the kitchen. Does it make sense? The circumstances are different. And also, when we get to certain cultures, there are certain things that, quite frankly, will be seen to be disrespectful in public towards your husband. And I think what we have to do without specifying is that each couple will uniquely work out what headship looks like and submission by thinking through their own circumstances and how this reflects in the culture. Does that make any sense? So that we don't become legalists and start to over-specify. As a woman, you cannot actually lead an organization. Why? But one, okay, I said one more thing, and this is the last of that one more thing. But then, Femi, it seems like you're just saying everything applies to everything. No, because the headship actually still means something. And here's how I, in my house, this is how we define it. And I've heard wiser people also say this, and I think this. At the end of the day, after we've removed all these things, here's how I think that the headship can work out. When there is an argument, when there is an impasse, when you have tried everything and both of you remain convinced on your own positions and a decision is to be taken, the wife should actually joyfully submit the casting vote to her husband. Or else he truly isn't head of your life. You may not actually like his decision. There is another head you can take it to. And husbands, be careful how you use that casting vote. Third thing. Because actually... We want to be sure that we're doing things right. I want to take you through just one more thing of how Paul shows how both the submission and the leadership are both of infinite worth. And it's this. Both of them actually look to Christ. You see, male, male leadership is, self, is sacrificial service. And we see it in the gospel. When you are a leader... Fine, you do have authority, but you do that for the sake of the other person's good in fulfilling their mission. He laid down his life for his bride so that she can be fully cleansed, so that on that day, that bride can be presented as utterly glorious. When you use your leadership, your leadership is not, for, is not self-serving. It's not so that now you have someone who comes back from work and eventually you, have, you put your leg on the whatever, get the remote control, and you wait. That's not how it is. You have this mantle of leadership for her. I'll say that again. Your mantle of leadership is for her, not for yourself. You must be radical. You must always search out what do you think will be good for her. Why? Because that's what Christ did for you. Now, but what about you, woman? It's also to look to Christ. If you read Philippians 2, verses 6 to, in fact, verses 6 to 11, that wonderful hymn, just listen to the first three verses. Christ, who being in the nature of God, did not consider it equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Staggering. Let me tell you what's going on there. In the, in the Bible, we identify God to be one being and three persons. 
right? One being three persons. These three persons are of the same nature. Everything is the same. They've always been eternal. They've always existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what he says here is that this, the Son himself actually decided to submit to the Father. He submitted to the Father not because he was inferior to the Father, not because he had less of a particular God stuff than the Father, but he submitted for a larger purpose. He submitted for you and I. He became obedient even to the death of the cross. He became like a servant. He submitted himself. So wives, just as your husbands are actually exercising leadership because of the gospel, you are also exercising this submission because of the gospel as well. In other words, we are both called to play the Christ role, but again, because we are different, we play those roles differently. Do we understand that? And so Christ becomes our example. But Christ also is our empowerment. And this is where I have to close. How full is your tank? Some of us would say this to me. They say, Femi, I don't have much to give. I don't have any to give again. And I'll tell you, this is the reason why. Don't forget that he gives us the empowerment. This is Ephesians 5.18. Keep being filled with the Spirit. Keep being filled with the Spirit. And it's only in this way you can live a gospel-centered marriage. If your model for marriage has been this, if my husband loves me, this is what fills my tank. So my husband gave me some love. It was a quarter. It's now a half. He gave me some more love, three quarter. So now he's not giving me any love. At least I have three quarter tank there. I can keep giving. He's not giving any love, it's half. He's not giving any love, it's quarter. He's not giving any love, it's empty. What happens after that? That is when you start snapping. Why? Because your dependency, the dependency of working out your, a fantastic marriage is solely dependent on your spouse. If you do that, you will fail. But if your dependency is that you're getting love from somewhere else, the love of God has been shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which he has been given to us. If you are getting your love nourished by constantly meditating, thinking through, praying in the gospel and seeing God's love for you, you will be able to love even when you are not being loved back. That's why it even says that the, un- the believing wife can still stick with the unbelieving husband. It also means that if you are so rooted in the gospel, you will be able to receive criticism because you know that his criticism doesn't ultimately condemn you because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, what I'm saying is the gospel is eventually what makes our marriages work. I can't go through all the different details. I know some of us are going through specific things. That's the counseling room. But receive actually what God has given us in the gospel. I cannot see anywhere in the world a more glorious and better picture of what it is to be married. It is all about the gospel. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table for us is a reflection of everything that the gospel says. Now you may be here and that gospel reality, maybe you think you've known the gospel before and you think you are a Christian, you may be here, but that hasn't made that much sense to you. Now, can I ask you first that if that is the case, then it will not make sense for you to partake of this table with us. Not because we don't want to include you. In fact, we do want to include you, and that's why we'll say 
quite gently that, why don't you think through? Why don't you model this wonderful submission and submit yourself to the one who submitted himself to the cross for you? You see, because there is no lover or no spouse that can offer you what Christ offers you. And if this is truly, if the gospel is truly attractive to you, what I'll say is this. Remain in your chair whilst we're doing the whole service and actually reflect on this. See me later so that we can prepare you for the next time that we actually celebrate the Lord's Supper. But until then, watch us. Watch us as we come to express our own love for the one who loved us to bring us to a glorious future and eternity. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We give you praise, glory, and honor, for it is soothing to our soul, and it is, it provides bread for the hungry. We love you, Lord. For we have no other husband like you. It's a wonderful thing to submit to you. And Lord, we ask that as we've gone through this series that you will indeed heal our marriages. We ask, Lord God Almighty, that not healing just for the sake of managing, but healing for the sake of flourishing. We ask that this mission of where we are going, that we will not be hindrances to our spouse's journey, but that we will be true partners. We ask that you do this, O God, for us in the power of your spirit. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.